20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through this wonderful Word of God, this precious book as we, God reveals Himself to us. And you'll find that on page 879 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I, I think you'll be aided this morning. If you're visiting with us especially, you may not be used to a sermon the length of which I'm about to give. And, and so you will be helped to have God's Word open in your lap, to engage in God's Word. There's 19 verses we intend to consider this morning. We will be going verse by verse, as is typically our custom, and I think you'll be very helped to engage in God's truth if you have God's Word open. I do want to uh, thank, once again, the Patrick Henry Youth Music Academy for being here. It is a great um, encouragement, I think, to us to, to not only see that God's people are gifted, but they use those gifts to build up his church and to give him glory. And I, th- I think you did that well today and in great encouragement to us. And I think our Father is greatly pleased with your offering. So Luke 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one they also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, 
for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the courage, the wisdom, and the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful, as we have heard already today, that he indeed is the rock upon which we stand in a weary place. Help us this morning by your grace and through your spirit to become more acquainted with this rock as he reveals himself to us in his word, we pray in his name. Amen. One pastor who has preached on these passion events of Jesus the the last week of his life invited his church to imagine a story of a of a young doctor married with three small children who who volunteers to take a dangerous six-month mission assignment to a place where there is an epidemic of a rare disease and a great deal of hostility from the local people there towards outsiders. He takes this assignment because nobody with his special training was willing to go. And so off he goes... The months pass slowly. The kids really miss Daddy. Mom is doing her best to hold things together, desperately longing for her beloved as she seeks to be both Mom and Dad until the day finally approaches when Daddy comes home. You could imagine the whole family would be full of excitement. Mom has butterflies in her tummy The kids race around the house shouting, Daddy's coming home, Daddy's coming home, Daddy's coming home. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a taxi pulls into the driveway. The kids bolt through the front door, followed by Mom, her heart beating so hard she can feel it. The back door of the cab opens and out steps Dad. A good deal thinner than he was before bearded to conceal his hollow cheeks, but with a big smile across his weary face. He kneels down on the grass and is immediately smothered by six clinging arms and legs, screaming, Daddy, 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 Daddy. Each one, of course, gets their special hug and a kiss while Mom patiently waits. Finally, he pulls himself loose of their embrace. She looks at her beloved and says, welcome home. He replies, it's good to be back. But you can see a message in that young doctor's eyes. Something he knows that his family does not. You see, he has caught the disease he went to heal. And he has one week left to live. Like this young doctor, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He returns home amidst the shouts of joy and praise of the pilgrims there to celebrate the Passover. But there is, I think, something in his eyes. He knows what no one else does, if you will. He has caught what he has come to heal. And he has one week left to live. He has arrived now in Jerusalem, as we have seen. This is the city where he has come to die. Luke has been preparing us for this, of course, since his birth. The angel told Mary, a sword will pierce through your soul. 
and his transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared from heaven to speak to him about his departure. Luke then tells us when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Three times Jesus has clearly announced his coming murder, most recently in Luke 18, verse 31, when he took the twelve aside and said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He came to Jerusalem to die. We already know in our study of Luke, those who would set about to kill him, as we consider the end of Luke 19, verse 47 tells us, and he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find, they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Right? He's too popular to just kill outright. We need to discredit him first. And so they come again to do as much. If we pick up the story in Luke 20, this would be Tuesday. Palm Sunday being the day he entered. Monday would be the day he cleansed the temple. And on Tuesday we discover, according to Luke 20 and verse 1, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. This, of course, is almost the identical group we saw who wanted to destroy him just a couple of verses earlier. The chief priests would be those who run the temple. The scribes would be those who were responsible for teaching the law. The leaders of God's people would be the leading families who kind of govern the, the people of Israel at this time. This is, of course, a, an official delegation. These are the ones who write the books and speak at the conferences. These are the guys who wear their long robes, the the experts in theology with the authority of the religious system. And, And here they come approaching Jesus. Can you imagine the tension that must have been in the air as they walked across the temple courtyard with a with a massive temple looming in the background, the murmurs and the gasps of the the Passover pilgrims seeing them approach as they reach this thronging crowd surrounding Jesus, pushing their way to the front, and there Jesus stands alone. What is it that they want? Well, we discover as much in verse 2. And said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Right? What gives you the right to clean out this house? What gives you right to rule in this temple? We are in charge by divine right, and you are undoing everything that we have set up. Now, by the way, I could kind of relate to what they must be thinking. Could you, of course, this building is no temple in any uh, any way, but could you imagine someone coming into this building and start, you know, taking an axe to our pews, or or the piano, if you like, or maybe the drums, take your pick. You, You and I would want to say, wait a second, by what authority do you do such things? Or imagine perhaps more close to what's going on, but not quite. Imagine the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City and someone comes in there with a, starts painting the walls. And here comes the Pope and all the archbishops and the cardinals with their fancy hats and their, 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 their scepters and their rods. And they want to know, by what authority do you do these things? This is their question for Jesus. This, of course, is not the last time Jesus will be asked this question, is it? 
I trust he'll be asked it today, as he was yesterday and the day before. Many want to know, what gives you the right, Jesus, to tell me what to do with my life? What gives you the right to tell me what to do with my money? What gives you the right to tell me what to do with my sexual orientation? What gives you the right to demand my worship? What gives you the right to determine my eternity? Tell me, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Now, usually people who have that question are not really interested in the answer. Just like the leaders here who approach Jesus. They have come to crush him. They want to kill him. It is clear in my mind that they've gathered the night before trying to figure out a way to discredit them, they, to, to plot how they might uh, entrap him. And so they come not seeking truth. They, they come with this, in their mind, a foolproof trap. Because if he says, my authority is from God, well, we have this zealot running around the temple, and certainly Rome would want to take care of that issue. But on the other hand, if he says, my authority is not from God, and then he, he's discredited as a fraud. And he quickly loses the popularity, which is the one thing that's keeping him alive. It's, it's almost heads I win, tails you lose. They got him. Or at least they thought. I don't know, it's in my mind there's a, quite a showdown. Imagine just everyone watching. This is one of those events I would love to have been at. I mean, here's the religious council. Here's the, the, the Passover crowd. They're silent. It, I almost have the spaghetti western music playing in my, in my mind as you know, you close up on their eyes as they stare each other down. Jesus, of course, is not so intimidated, is he? As you see in verse 3, he answered them, I will also ask you a question now. Tell me, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, just so you know, he will answer their question soon enough. You get to the end of this chapter and he will very clearly lay out the authority by which he asks. But not quite yet. He has a question for them. And by the way, his question is, is brilliant because their answer to his question is the answer to their own question. Because John's ministry of baptism is linked to Jesus' authority, his identity. When he was baptized by John, it was heaven that opened and declared audibly in in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. And therefore, the question, the answer to their question about what authority he's acting has already been answered by heaven itself through the ministry of John's baptism. And so he says, okay, first, you answer me, multiple choice, was John a prophet of God or was he not? Two, I mean, it's just two answers, yes or no. And yet they seem to be struggling with the test, don't they, as we see in verse 5. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. You, you can see them, can't you, entering this huddle and they say, well, can we have a second to talk this over, Jesus? And they get together and they put their heads together and they begin to discuss. What's interesting to me is not what they discuss, but what they do not discuss. Was John actually a prophet? You notice there's no consideration of the question. There was no pursuit of truth in any way. They're not seeking truth. They're posturing. They're, they're, they're seeking evasion. It, theoretically, be like a politician. This might be hard to imagine, but they tell you not what they think, but what will get them the most votes. Well, that's what they're doing. You say, what do we say from God? They'll say, well, why didn't you believe John? And you see Luke 7 clearly lays out that they did not. But if we say it's not from God, the people, they love John and they will, they will stone us here. It's, they have this dilemma, right? They either become followers of Jesus or they get killed. 
And they don't like either choice. So what do they do? Well, we see this much in verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Now, of course, they're lying. They have rejected John. But they value their positions more than truth. There's Pastor John Piper who says, this is a politically driven answer with no allegiance to the truth. The scribes and elders huddled in the dark as if there were no God listening as if the main person in the universe did not matter in their dealings with truth. And so they, they will not tell him the truth. They say, we do not know, which is astonishing to me, because you have to understand these are the greatest theolo- theological minds of their day, and they can't even answer a very simple theological question. And therefore, neither will Jesus answer theirs, as we see in verse 8. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Remember, Jesus once said that you do not give what is holy to dogs. And you do not cast pearls before swine. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you all are pigs and I will not cast the pearl of truth just so you can trample it in order to preserve your own power. Man, I would have, once again, would have loved to have seen this. I would have loved to watch them fumble for the answer. The, the greatest minds of their day cannot answer a simple true or false questions. Can't you hear the laughter from the crowds? It's, They gather to challenge Jesus, and Jesus in one move publicly convinces that the leadership of Israel is ignorant of the most basic theological facts and continues to blatantly defy their authority, ruling the temple. The leaders of God's people, unable to recognize God's prophet or God's son, as if they are unfamiliar with God himself. Now, to be clear, I would like to answer this question. Jesus' authority is from God. He is the Lord. He is above all. Therefore, if Jesus commands something and the world says it is foolish, we as his people are to obey. If Jesus declares something, though the world would disagree, the world is wrong, Jesus is right. That's kind of our standard operation here. We're going with Jesus on this one. We're going to be with Jesus. He has all authority as he defends their attack. It's interesting that now Jesus, he gets the ball from them, if you will, and he goes on the offensive with this parable, explaining the past, predicting the future with particular application to the leadership of Israel. And by the way, they knew it. But this various parable, and we'll spend the rest of our time, is very helpful for us as we gain God's perspective on our own lives and even our future. So consider five truths from this parable of the wicked tenants, as it is often called. Truth number one, God's gifts. God's gifts. Consider verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants, and they went into another country. And he went into another country for a long time. This would be common in Jesus' day. Someone would own a farm, and they would lend it out to people who would farm it. It's common in our day, by the way. And, and, and the arrangement would be the owner would receive some of the fruit. Or he, uh, the, the, and the tenants, of course, they would receive some of it as well. It would almost be like you're renting this property and you would have to pay the owner. The owner, of course, of this vineyard in this story is God. God owns the vineyard. The vineyard, which we might generally think applies to all the world, because all things belong to God. And of course, it would be true in that. But specifically in this parable, it's a reference to Israel. 
This would be a very familiar kind of national identity for Israel. Much like you and I might see a bald eagle and we could identify that, that, that's us. Israel would see a vineyard and they would identify that as themselves. They do this because the, the prophets would continually refer to Israel as the vineyard. Jeremiah would call Israel God's choice vine or Hosea the luxuriant vine. As Ezekiel, Joel, Psalms as well. The most famous of all this is the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. When the Lord speaks to the prophet saying, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so they understand that when we talk about the vineyard, he's talking about them. In fact, on the temple, which is in, in the background of this, as Jesus teaches, according to one commentator, is a richly carved grapevine, a hundred feet high, sculpted around the door that led to the temple. The branches, tendrils, and the leaves were made of finest gold. The bunches of grapes hanging upon the golden limbs were costly jewels, right? So they, they understand we're, we're the vine, the owner is God. Well, then who are the tenants? Well, the tenants are those who care for the vine. They're the leaders of Israel, the very people confronting Jesus. And Jesus lets them know that the vineyard is not theirs, it is God's. You do not use the people of God for your own gain, for your own status, for your own advance, but for the Lord. The religious leaders have been tasked by God to lead Israel to bear the fruit of, re, of, of, of obedience. Now, so that, that's who the tenants are, that's who the characters are in this story. But you see there's application to us as well, right? Because we very much are tenants as, uh, just as they are. I remind you this morning that Scripture teaches us again and again that your life and your talents and your creativity and your possessions and your relationships, your, your privileges and your authority are all given to you by God. They are God's gifts to you. You don't own them. God has put you in, in charge of them. You are a tenant farmer of them. And, and that you are to use them in a way that brings honor to the one who owns them, namely the Lord. Right? You use it all for Him. He wants fruit from your life, just as He wanted it from these tenants, as we see in verse 10. When the time came, He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give Him some of the fruit of the vineyard. And so here He comes. He says, time to pay up. It's time to give me what is mine. You notice, instead of giving Him what is due, they begin to act like owners themselves, as we read on in verse 10. And so we see, they, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Right? They, they don't pay their rent. They, they don't give the owner his profit. They say, it's mine. Right? We won't give you anything. Can you imagine a tenant doing this? And we might shake our head and think, how can anyone do such a thing? Not realizing that we in our heart have the very same tendency. That all of us in some way do we not act like owners and not tenants. We, we want to run our lives the way we want to do so. This is the constant message the world uh, offers to us. You set your own agenda, the world says. You don't let anybody determine for you what's good or bad, what's right or wrong. You decide for yourself. And Christ comes and He says exactly the opposite. The world says you're an owner. Jesus said you're a tenant. You're a steward. You have a mind that has been given to you by God. You don't get to use it however you want. You have desires. You can't use those desires, Jesus says, in any way you want. You have possessions and relationships and opportunities. You don't get to use those however you want. They use them for the advance and the honor and the glory of the one who has given them to you. 
You tend the vineyard for His profit. You use your gifts for His glory. And they refused to do so. In fact, they not only kept all for themselves, you notice they abused the one He sent. They beat Him, He says in verse 10, send Him away empty-handed, which teaches us a second truth, that God is patient. God is patient. Again, can you, can you imagine that maybe some of you own, actually own rental property and maybe you own an investment property in the town over and you have some tenants living there and they agree to pay you rent, but first of the month comes by, they don't give you anything, and then next month comes by and you don't get anything, and the next month, and finally you send someone over to see what's going on. He, he knocks on the door and they say, hello, how may I help you? And he says, yeah, well, I'm here on behalf of the owner and he wants to know where his rent is. And they say, well, yeah, come on in. And he comes in, they close the door, and they jump him. And they start to beat him, right? And he, he finally gets away from them and bolts out the door and runs for his life. And he comes back to the owner, and the owner says, well, how did it go? Well, it didn't go so well, right? They broke my nose. They pelted me with rocks as I ran for my life. And by the way, they said they're never going to give you anything. Right? Never a penny. So what then does the owner do? I mean, what would you do? think it's obvious what I would do. You know, hello, sheriff, right? We have a problem. Not this owner. For you consider verse 11. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shapely and sent him away empty-handed. You know, that would be a good day to call him sick, I think. I'm not sure I'd want to go, but the same thing happens to him. They wound him, cast him out. So what then does he do? Well, look in verse 12, and he set yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. This, of course, is the story of the Old Testament. That God's people would beat and kill those whom God sent to them, namely the prophets. The servants are very clearly the prophets of God. A prophet had a hard job. You would be the lone voice saying to the people of God, you're in sin, you're rebelling against God, you're wrong, you need to repent. You know what it meant to be a prophet? It meant you'll be lonely, it meant you'll be unpopular, and it meant you would be routinely beaten by God's people if not killed. No one ever wanted to be a prophet. No one ever volunteered to be a prophet. That's why God had to pick them. Moses said, you know, I would love to, but I can't speak very well. Why not you pick someone else? Jonah says, I think I'll go the other way. Isaiah says, okay, I'll be a prophet, but for how long? Can we lay out the terms first? Jeremiah says, cursed be the day I was born. That's pretty bad. Cursed be the guy who said to my dad, it's a boy. Because that was a bad day, Jeremiah said. The people beat the prophets. Elijah was chased into the wilderness. Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death. Jeremiah was put in a pit and left to die. John, of course, was beheaded. Stephen summarized it all in Acts 7 saying, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? You see, the prophets were a threat to the status quo. They were a threat to those who had power. And so the leaders persecuted them. And yet God keeps sending more and more and more. His patience is astounding. His long suffering is amazing. He persisted and persisted and persisted. If it were me, I think one or two, that would have been plenty. Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Right? I would kick the world like a soccer ball. Is what he says. But God says, let's try it again. 
Let's give them another chance to give me what is mine. Let's give them another opportunity to receive my mercy. Again and again and again. And I just want you to think about your own life. How many times has God convicted you of sin? Maybe He will do so even today. And how many times have you let that conviction fade away and you go right back into your sin and God says, okay, I'll give them another time. I'll send another messenger to them. Or think about your own life. How many times did you refuse the gospel before you eventually repented? How many preachers and friends and parents and and books did God send to you and you refused and refused and refused? What if God accepted your first refusal? Okay, I gave them a chance. There it was. They said, no, I'm moving on. I remember when I first consciously, my first conscious memory of the gospel was 15 years old in Boy Scouts. There were a, a pair of identical twins in our, we had a large troop, about 70 boys, and these identical twins, they were about my age, a couple, like two days older than me, actually, and they were radically saved by Jesus Christ. And so these boys took it upon themselves, we are going to evangelize this Boy Scout troop. And in our campouts, we were camping every month, and they would lead this church service. One twin would play the music, the other twin would preach. These 15-year-old boys took it upon themselves to bring this troop to Christ, and I took it upon myself to ridicule and mock them for it. What if God said to me, okay, there's your chance. Enough. You said no, moving on. But God in His grace sent another and another and another. God is patient with you and with I. Maybe He's sending you this message even now. Who's patient like Him? Who suffers long like Him? Maybe you're hearing it from your friends or your parents Maybe you're hearing it from a trial or frustration in your life as God teaches you that you're not in control. Will you not receive His message? Will you not bow your knee to Him? Maybe He's sending you as the messenger. You should therefore not be surprised when people oppose you. You should not think, well, if I go, they, they, will, they, they won't like me. They'll think bad of me. They, they might even hurt me. Oh, so what? That's the job. As we will consider in a couple of weeks as we recognize the suffering our persecuted brothers and sisters are enduring throughout this world. Don't give up. Be patient like God has been patient with you. In fact, He's even willing to suffer. As you consider third, God's suffering. So He sent one. He sent two. He sent three. What will He now do? He actually asks Himself as much. As you see in verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? His answer is tragic. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Of course, Jesus is the beloved son. I think that would have been obvious to everyone standing there that Christ is referring to himself. It's certainly obvious to us. We have heard this throughout the Gospel of Luke. The angel said to Mary, the child to be born to you will be called the son of God. We've heard it in his baptism from heaven speak. We heard it on the Mount of Transfiguration when God speaks from the clouds saying, this is my son. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I think perhaps the most important thing that you could ever do in your life is to figure out who Jesus is. Maybe this would be a good place to start. You see, Jesus does not understand himself as a tenant on this vineyard. He does not even understand himself contrary to our Muslim friends as another prophet from God. In fact, he sees himself as 
the son of the owner. This parable is ultimately about him, the sending of the beloved son to the wicked tenants. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Says The owner says, I'll send my son. And we hear that and there's something in your heart that says, don't do it. Right? We don't even know, need to know the end of the story. You know you're hard enough saying, no, 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 don't send your son. It will not end well. well. Jesus clearly knows this too. For he tells us what will happen in verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Perhaps they're thinking after they conference together that the owner is dead. And so let's kill the heir and no one will have it and it'll be ours. This, this parable is about Jesus telling of his murder. That he knows what's going to happen to him. Even down to the detail. You see that in verse 14? That he'll be thrown out of the city even before they kill him. Having persecuted the prophets, they will kill the son. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, if God would just show himself, I would believe Right? If God would just kind of appear, then I would obey. Well, it didn't go so well last time. The one time God shows Himself, they beat Him, mock Him, and pin Him to a cross until He dies. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is a human heart. And when people say, well, if God would do this and God would do this, it's just a smoke screen. The problem is people don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to. Now, certainly there are some people with an honest intellectual objection, but the vast majority, their heart's saying, I don't want to believe in him. The heart is, as Paul said, hostile to God. And, and all the, and whenever you can counter someone with an intellectual argument and say, okay, well, you say Jesus is the Son of God, the risen Lord. Well, what about this, right? Before you even begin to a- answer that question, what about this? Ask them this question. If I can satisfactorily answer your question, will you then give your life to Jesus? And almost universally, at least in my experience, they will say no. Because the problem for them is not that question. The problem is they do not want to submit to this God. They don't want to submit to anyone. They want to rule their life. I appreciate the honesty of Aldous Huxley, the brilliant philosopher of the early 20th century, who said, I don't want there to be meaning to the universe because I want to sleep with whoever I want to. Right? He says, underneath all the arguments is the heart wants control. I want to do what I want. I, I don't want to believe. And they did not want to believe Jesus because they wanted their own power and their own control. Instead, they, they turn on the Son. They kill the Son. Just as I would have done if I were there at that day. And I guess I would imagine you probably would have joined them as well. We were thinking about this in Sunday school this morning that that we, because of our sin, we're responsible for the death of Jesus. That, that God, the Bible says, Isaiah 53, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Right? The beloved Son died because of my sin and because of your sin. And therefore, if you will, I, I have His blood on my hands. I have the blood of Jesus on my hands. I'm responsible for His death. 
And so are, are all who have trusted in Him, whose sin He has paid for. Parents, can you just imagine this for a moment? You notice how he, he emphasizes this is not just the Son, but the beloved Son. Imagine someone who has done evil against you for years. They've stolen from you. They talk behind your back. They mock you. They hurt you. They, they, they take what's yours, right? And your final act of love is you send them your Son, whom you love, to try to work it out. And instead, they murder Him. How would you respond, mom and dad? Would you say, well, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. No, amidst the tears and the heartbreak, there will be anger in your heart. They murdered your son. And you would want justice. Just as God does as we consider forth God's judgment. Look in verse 15. They threw him out the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asked this question. What wants them to think about the consequence? He answers his own question once again. In verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to another. You see, they murdered the son. It's the last straw. His patience has ended. This is Jesus once again, as we saw in Luke 19, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. But there is a foreshadow here of the eternal judgment that is coming. Please understand that God is a judge and hell is real. In fact, many people say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe in hell. I just believe in heaven. I don't, I don't think God sends anybody to hell. To be, uh, as I know my own heart, you know what? Hell makes a lot more sense to me than heaven. Right? God makes us to be like him and to worship him and obey him. Instead, we do what we want. and We serve others and we worship idols. And God graciously sends us messenger after messenger after messenger to turn back. We reject everyone and eventually he sends his son and we kill him the day he shows up. I mean, what do we expect to get from him? Pat on the back? Right? An invitation over for dinner? No, no, someone keeps breaking the law, someone's dealing drugs or robbing banks, and then finally they get caught and you visit them in prison, and they say to you, I can't believe I'm in prison. I mean, what do you say to them? Well, that's kind of what happens when you rob banks and deal drugs. Right? You pick a fight with God, you're going to lose. Judgment will come. In fact, the Bible says judgment will be so obvious that everyone will be silent. That is, no one will object as God will come and judge all the inhabitants of the earth. Their actions, their thoughts, their words, the secrets of man's heart. Judgment is coming. This is what he announces. You see it there again in verse 16. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. When he says give the vineyard to others, this is a prophecy that God will no longer work through the nation of Israel to expand his kingdom. Certainly not its leadership. The authority of God's people will be transferred to the church and the vineyard will be extended to the nations. And they get it. They understand it. For you read on in verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. Right? Jesus has here openly announced when he is the son of God, two, they will kill him. And three, God will judge them for that. And the question is, okay, why did he send his son? then? And why did he send him if he's going to be killed? Just so he can be right in judgment? No. He sent His Son so He can be right in salvation. As you consider lastly this morning, God's triumph. And here Jesus ends the parable and then begins to explain its meaning, quoting prophecy from, the, from Psalm 118. Notice verse 17, He says, but He looked at them directly. You could see the intensity there, looking at them directly in the eyes, perhaps pausing 
and said to them, what then is that is written? Why then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 118, which would be the exact same messianic psalm that they sang when he rode in on a donkey two days earlier. They quoted verse 25 and verse 26. Hosanna, that is, save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Jesus now will quote that psalm that is in their heart. They have memorized. He'll quote verse 22, saying, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he's trying to explain this parable. The son was rejected, yes, and the stone is rejected. They both refer to the same person. Jesus is the crucial stone. Also, we see that following the son's rejection, there is judgment. Well, likewise, following the rejection of the stone comes judgment. Note verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And so as the owner destroys the tenant, so the stone crushes its builders. So what does this, this verse from Psalm 118 add to the story? Well, it tells us one additional piece of information. It tells us that this rejected stone has itself become the cornerstone. What does it mean that Christ has become the cornerstone? Well, a couple months later, Peter and John, after Jesus had been killed and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, Peter and John will be in the same temple courtyard. They'll find a man who is lame. He's begging for money. He says, we don't have money, but what we do have, we give to you freely in the name of Jesus Christ get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And it just kind of the place goes crazy. And Peter uses this as an opportunity to preach about Jesus and the resurrected Lord. This gets these very same people that Jesus is talking to all bent out of shape. And they arrest John and they arrest Peter. And you know their question for John and Peter who are teaching in the temple. They ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Sound familiar, doesn't it? Peter answers in Acts chapter 4, I believe in verse 8, or put that on the screen for you now rulers of the people and elders if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Peter has learned from Jesus. He's paying attention on this Tuesday. And he uses the same psalm to explain what's happened. You notice Peter clearly identifies, one, Jesus is the stone. Two, that the rejection by the builders or the leaders was his crucifixion. And three, the rejected stone has become the cornerstone, clearly a reference to Jesus' resurrection and exaltation which he says, whom God has raised from the dead. You see, the stone that was rejected on the cross has now become the cornerstone of the resurrected life. What this means is that, at the very least, you and I are to build our life on Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is, as the choir sang for us, He is the rock upon which we stand. He is the cornerstone upon which all of which we build. I'm currently in in a a building project myself. I'm I'm building a treehouse for my children. 
And um, uh, yeah, you can laugh. Uh, hopefully it will stay up. That's okay. Um, it, you know, uh, we, 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 we got, we're up to eight kids now. So it's, I mean, it's big. It's, it's 22 feet long. It's 12 feet wide. Um, we got to put eight kids up there, a couple dogs, cats, who knows what else they'll bring up there. And um, I mean, it, 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 in fact, I told them it opens August 1st, 2018. So give me some time, kids. I put it into three trees. So it's all up in the trees connected to three trees. And the trouble is when you, when you, put, you put a horizontal beam in each tree, each horizontal beam has to be level with the other horizontal beams. But the trees are, you know, 16 feet apart and the ground's not level. And so you get a plastic tube about 25 feet long. You create a water level. I won't bore you with all this. But you need to get them level. Because if they're not, not level, the whole thing is off. It all will eventually come tumbling down. It may come tumbling down whether it's level or not. But, but you, need it. you need it to be level, right? It's the foundation. Well, that's what the cornerstone means. You, the f- first stone you lay and everything else is built on it. Jesus is that cornerstone. And what people try to do is they say, okay, I'll, I'll take Jesus and I'll fit him into my life like he's a shingle or a shutter. And Jesus, no, I'm not going to be a shingle. I'm not a curtain to hang on the wall. I am the foundation. You don't squeeze me in. You build everything on me. You build your schedule on me. You start with me and you schedule out the week. Okay, what do I need to do with Jesus? And then everything else gets scheduled off that. And you build your relationships off Jesus. Okay, I'm committed to Christ. What does that look like in my marriage or how I treat my grandchildren or raise my kids? Or, okay, I start everything on Jesus. How does that look like with how I use the finances in which he has given me? We start with Jesus. And I wonder if there's some of you just need to dis- assemble your whole life and start over stop trying to fit christ in here and there and you build the whole thing on jesus he is he is the cornerstone and as the cornerstone far more important than building your life as the cornerstone salvation is found in no one else you see that verse 12 and there is no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other option. There is no other cornerstone. It is Christ and Christ alone. There is a, a famous man, a man who's, who preaches a lot. is a former Hindu who is converted to Christ. And he is known to say, all religions lead to God. That's a very Hindu Kind of saying, but then he clarifies, they bring you to God as a judge. All religions will bring you to God as your judge. But you don't need a judge when you come to God, you need a savior. And only Christianity has a savior. Well, how is it that Christ saves us? How is it that he has become the cornerstone? Well, I've mentioned to you as we close this morning that when I think about the death of our Lord, I'm recognized I have, there are blood on my hands. I am very much, I am the wicked tenant. I deserve God's judgment. You do too. We've all gone our own way. We've all lived our own lives. We've all made our own decisions without any regard to the one who creates us and sustains us. And we deserve God's judgment. Jesus comes and says, I will take that judgment on myself. You see, Jesus, who was the beloved son is treated like a wicked tenant so that I and you, a wicked tenant, can be treated 
like a beloved son. And God says, I'll forgive your sins and I'll adopt you into my family and I'll give you the family name which is Christian and I will make you an heir. And you want, there's part of your heart says, but I, but I hated you and I turned upon you and I rebelled against you. And he will come and say, I know, but my son was willing to be punished for you. And I'm telling you, if you receive that gift of Christ's substitutionary death, God will forgive you. He will adopt you into his family. And one day you shall live upon a new and re- redeemed earth for forever and ever in just joy and feasting and laughter because of the grace of God. Could you imagine if you go home tonight and you turn on the nightly news and, and their lead story is not some politician's tweet, but it's actually there was an evil people who rebelled against a good, wealthy, and mighty king and they murdered his son and yet this man forgave them. He adopted them into his family and they are heirs of his kingdom. Could you imagine some Some people saying, no, thank you. We'll go our own way. We'll take our own chances. And yet the most gracious, unimaginable offer that is given over and over again, people walk away and they walk away and they walk away because they're just like these religious leaders. I want control. Give up your control. And bow your knee to the risen Lord, the cornerstone. Tell Jesus you're sorry for your life as a wicked tenant and submit everything to Him. For the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's folly to reject Jesus. It's folly to reject the cornerstone Everyone who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces. So what did they do? Well, notice verse 19 as we end this morning. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. They know he was talking about them. They know he was speaking against them. And they can't stand it. You see the irony? How dare you say we will kill the son? We're going to kill you for that. And they would. It would happen just as the Lord said. He would be rejected and killed. But the rejected stone has become the cornerstone. He is alive and reigning. And I tell you, based upon the authority of the very word of God, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Our Father in heaven, your grace to us is beyond our understanding. We shall have eternity to plumb its depths. Why you would save one such as I, why you would give me another chance and another chance and another chance and do that for hundreds of millions of people is because You are a God of grace, a patient, long-suffering God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but longs for man and woman to come to faith in Christ. May we who trust in You today, may our hearts soar and our minds leap as we have reminded ourselves from the words of Jesus 
the length and the cost to which you have gone to save us. And may you this morning, as you were gracious to me long ago, be gracious to the one or two or perhaps even ten here that have not submitted their lives to Christ. Will you not persuade them of the utter grace and mercy of your offer to them now that you, Son, extends them nail-pierced hands and says, receive me as your King and be saved. Work in their hearts that they might believe for your glory and for their eternal gain. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.